Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. And now without any further ado, I'll deal with tonight's uh, person. As I said, many moons ago, many, many moons ago, when I was in grad school, so I once took a course in which the uh, assignment is you have to uh, write up, you have to do a, a full paper on, on some famous historian. And... Uh, uh, you know, this guy chooses this one, that chooses that. I was a Jew in the class, you know. So, um, but I didn't want to do grads and all these other guys because they've been done to death by people before me. And I don't know what got in my mind by someone do Fritz Bear and all that. He they say, I never heard him. That makes it even better when the professor never heard of him. And, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, he's not someone that's, that's uh, world famous, although in the profession he is. And uh, after tonight, you'll see why. And um, I really got into it, and I wrote a whole big, long paper, as, as grad students do, and so forth. And ever since then, we've been joined at the hip. Because when you examine someone's uh, life and all this thing very closely, there's a certain Kesher. And uh, therefore, when I thought about doing some of the famous historians, that's one of the first names that jumped to my mind, even though it might not be uh, the first one jumps to yours. And, and wait, wait a second. And happens to be that this week is Israel Independence Day, Yomatzmut. Here in uh, good old Cock Baltimore, people are always on two sides of the issue. They should say how, they shouldn't say how, Israel this, Tachlan, you know, uh, the, we have right wingers, we have left wingers, and all the rest of it. But most people don't actually know what Zionism is, um, and uh, especially in an intellectual sense. And the, uh, the life of Yitzhak Baer uh, takes us into this uh, parsha, into what, what Zionism actually uh, was, especially once upon a time in a very, I hope it will be a very thoughtful way. Uh, I think it's a thoughtful way. And tonight it could be a little bit more uh, intellectual than I usually am. But as I say before, if we have people who are crazy enough to come out at this hour, then, then, then I know you're ready for it. So without any further news, further ado, let me get right into it. Um, the 19th century historians that we've been looking at, uh, Gregs and Weiss and uh, you know, uh, Geiger and many others, uh, none of them had PhDs in history. Isn't that interesting? Even the ones who went to college, the university, they had PhDs in uh, loser subjects, Semitics, philology. These were considered loser subjects which the standards are lower, and it's like today, oh yeah, and uh, oh my goodness, and the type of person that goes into that is usually going to be some kind of a clergy person, and it was, you know, like uh, politically correct, like African studies, something like that. That's, that's how they assigned all these, these uh, dead races. Um, all the people you see on the board um, had uh, Semitic uh, degrees, for example. Uh, the reason is because Jews were not admitted to history departments. Okay? I mean, as students. You get it? Because history is for the right kind of person. As, <laughs> as students, they were not chashev enough. I'm talking about the 19th century. The students, they were not chashev enough. And anyway... There doesn't exist Jewish history. Jewish history is a subject that isn't. If political correctness compels, all right, so we'll let you in, and, but take Semitics. So study dead races, like uh, King Tut, <laughs> right? Uh, Sancher and Maimonides. 
even, even where I teach in Hopkins, uh, on, uh, I'm dealing with modern Jewish history. On the left of me is a, a Syriology professor, and on the right of me is an Egyptology professor. So we're all part of dead cultures. You understand? <laughs> no, it's, 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 you don't understand. This is a powerful Western cultural message um, that they're sending out of here. Jake, do you have the, the, the pointer? Yeah, I forget. The, um, yeah, thank you. Anyhow, the, hello, hello, Doverhoop. And the actual, as I said before, I'm going to get a little bit more technical tonight. The history department itself, once upon a time, had its own real you know, elitist uh, kind of a culture. The first generations of Jews just grin and bear it. They hoped to demonstrate that Judaism and Jews actually do have a history. But they did not succeed in making that case to the Goyim. Okay? And a lot of this, as I do with, with, with what we said, we call intellectual anti-Semitism. Correct? I'm talking, now, all this precedes Hitler, and I'm not, I'm not going to be so bold as to say it caused Hitler, because I don't think that would be true. But nevertheless, Hitler did not come out of nowhere. Okay? Um, they think that this will cause the Gentiles, once they write, grass is an 11-volume history of the Jewish people, and all these other sorts of things, they'll say, wow, uh, we were wrong, and Judaism is a subject worthy of study, and we should have set, set up in the university a Jewish studies department. Uh, not really. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. So it's not, it's not going to happen. So the Jewish, the Jewish kids interested in history, however, by the time you get to the end of the 1800s, by the 1890s and afterwards, they want to be historians, not Semiticists. They don't want to go into philology department or something like that. They want to be able to master the craft of history, especially for their own people, because they think the Jewish people have a history, that there is a people. They want to learn the trade of being historians and apply it to their own past, particularly training in the technical stuff, in deciphering documents, organizing historical information, and applying the latest techniques of historical analysis to Jewish history, then Jewish history hopefully will get some respect. Okay? Now... <laughs> The fact is, because this is what Judaism, Jewish culture. Um, let, let me explain. There's a whole set of historical techniques that developed in Germany, in Dafkin, Germany, in the 1800s, which led to the fact that all over the world, if anybody wanted to learn how to do history correctly, you traveled to Germany, went to a German university, and got your training. Whether you want to be in the Johns Hopkins University, Columbia, uh, the University of Chicago, uh, Harvard, uh, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, Sorbonne, all the rest of it. In Germany, they get the latest techniques. The Germans are very good in trying to be as methodologically rigorous as possible to assemble all the data and you know, get, get it all in order. The best, I'm talking about the best aspects of German culture, as it were, right? The application of scientific, at least, you can never be really scientific in history because you can't get all the data. But you can get as much as possible out there. And if you apply the scientific attitude, if you don't get all the data, that's a chesarin in your scientific, uh, how shall I put it, methodology, as it would be in, in, in physics or chemistry or something like that. So this kind of attitude. And now, now that I said that, think about people like Gretz or others who just did hop plop because they had no choice. You know what I'm saying? Somebody, Jewish rabbi in the 1870s, a good one like Bacher or Kaufman, you, know, you find a couple of documents over here, you find a couple of old things over here, you publish it, it's, it's much better than it was before. There's no possibility, there's no grants to go and do research all over the world and find every little 
iota and, and, and piece of information. It just doesn't exist. But now, by the time you get to the late 1800s, those who care about these sorts of things uh, say, and what's wrong with the Jewish past? Why don't, we, why don't we do it? Now, by the way, it's the oldest story in the book. There was plenty of Jewish money out there, but the Jewish millionaires won't pay for this. The same way today that there's plenty of Jewish money out there, but the Jewish millionaires won't pay in America for Jewish education. It's, it's, this, this is the world in which we live. Now, the departments of history in Germany discourage the students. They try to tell them not to go. But they persist. And this is all happening in the late 1800s, early 1900s, at a time in which there's a tremendous intellectual anti-Semitism. And I mean in a principled way. Uh, the sorts of things we talked about last time. Racialism is out there being uh, uh, you know, uh, propagated by the professors and the science departments. Um, they'll tell you that whatever is Jewish out there, as I said last week, was stolen from the Babylonians or from the Egyptians or from some other group. The Jewish people have fundamental flaws in their character which make them incapable of modern citizenship, etc., etc., etc. I just tell you, it's like being in Europe now in which the mainstream press in many countries just spews anti-Semitism, the kind of thing that we would be shocked at anywhere outside of Baltimore, because in Baltimore we have the good old Baltimore Sun, so they do a good job of that. But everybody else, <laughs> right? Everybody else, you'd be, you'd be surprised at seeing that. It's tough for young Jews. So here you are, a young Jew growing up in Germany, Austria, France, a place like this. You're a young person, and it's 1890, 1900, 1910. It's hard not to succumb to depression to self-loathing, to the desire to convert, or to, at least to conceal one's Jewishness. This is particularly true if you're not from. If you come from a, a very from little, so you live a, in Europe in a little micro-community, and you don't deal with anyone else, all right. But that doesn't happen. Even in the German Orthodox communities, to the degree that kids read the paper and you know, they go to college, and they interact with the general culture, even they, we have records, have self-doubts and, and, and bad feelings. And uh, it, was, it was just tough. Now, um, acculturated and assimilated Jews find it really hard. Being religious to them is not an option. And non-from Judaism, like reform and conservative, is not respect-inspiring. They already knew that all they're doing is catering to the bourgeois and, and the wealthy in the synagogues. You understand? You know, whatever they want, that's the message you're getting. So that might work for middle-class, middle-aged people. It doesn't work for the young who are idealistic. You see? And so I'm, t I'm just trying to, it was a tough time, and it's ironic, because the Jews by this time had attained civil rights. Okay? They, in Germany, in Austria, all over Europe, they had attained civil rights. But they had hoped that with the attainment of civil rights, with the removal of civil disabilities, and the ability to go to any college you want, move wherever you want, all the rest of it, would come a basic acceptance society that would actually be a real member, socially speaking, in the society, and instead they found themselves the opposite, uh, the object of clear loathing on the part of all the others. And it, it, there's a whole science of this, of people, maybe I'll get to it a little bit later, of uh, German Jews, Central European Jews, other Jews, who really are very ashamed of their Jewishness, and, you know, they'll, they'll say like this, it's, oh, why couldn't I have been born a guy? <laughs> Life would be so much easier. It would have been so much better. Because all the other kids, they look better than me. They act better. They're cooler than I am. They don't have all the uh, uh, phobias and the uh, self-doubts uh, that we have. And all, all that sort of thing it was tough. Now, uh, Dreyfus, I put up here as a great example. 
as you know, he was accused of being a spy. He could not fall back upon his Judaism. He was too alienated from it. He could not fall back upon his religion. He didn't believe in religion. He can only say, I'm innocent, and I'm a good Frenchman. As you know, the French system shafted him. Okay? So he had nothing in terms of inner spiritual reserves upon which to fall. That's one of the reasons that the chief rabbi and the other Jews in France weren't so interested in driving there. He said, he's he never been part of us. He's never come to show. So all of a sudden he's claiming, you know, he's a Jew, and he never claimed he was a Jew. And so I want you to understand how brittle one's Jewish identity is or can be under these circumstances. It was precisely in the middle of all this that the Zionist movement appeared. That's Herzl in 1895. He writes the Jewish state. In 1897, he already starts the Zionist con uh, Congress. Uh, you don't understand, most people, the role of Zionism, not in seeking a state in Israel. Of course, that's true. Uh, but forget that. The role of Zionism in instilling pride in the assimilated Jew. This was, uh, we, we have many records of this. It was an electrifying experience. You understand? When a guy like him, who had made it in the Geisha world, he was the equivalent of the New York Times correspondent, Paris correspondent, he was for, for the New York Times of Vienna. Uh, and he, as I said before, he, he wrote uh, these uh, political uh, uh, articles and novels, I mean, not novels, uh, columns about French politics and all that kind of stuff, which was very sexy in European affairs and you know what's going on in Paris, all interesting. He was at the top of his form, and then, and he also was a Jew who couldn't sleep and had self-doubts and was, uh, you know, uh, wondering about why he wasn't zuch enough to be born a guy and all the rest of it. And then he says, "The heck with this! I'm turning this around, and just as an act of will, I'm gonna, I'm gonna decide to be proud I'm a Jewish." And the Golden don't like it. I have two words for them. You understand? This, this really would happen. That is the example. What I just said, which kids in England, France, America, Germany, and the rest of the place, you know, Austria and Hungary and all that, were inspired by. Is one of us? And he's decided, instead of running away from his Judaism, to embrace it. Not religious, because he had nothing to do with religion. To embrace his Jewish identity, nevertheless. Uh, the Zionist attitude that Herzl, who was a liberal, he was a strong, it would be today like a, like a uh, middle-of-the-road Democrat, I, I, I would put it, which is fairly to the left. He says, the Zionist attitude he propagated is, we are not better than any other group in the world. But we're not worse either. I don't say we're better than the French, the Germans, all the rest, but we are not worse than them either. You understand? Um, we're not worse than any European nation. We have nothing to be ashamed of. And Herzlian Zionism therefore attracted the best kind of non-from Jewish young person. Right? Zionism was a real lifesaver for these types. And uh, as I say before, it is, it is what it is. That's, here, Jabotinsky was a young guy, growing up in Odessa. He had all these doubts about how he'd be Jewish. Uh, and, but he was 15 when, when Herzl started. And uh, he read about it. He said, that's for me. I'm going I'm to I'm be a proud Jew. You understand? I'm a proud Jew. Especially when he discovered, as many did, that when you're proud of your Jewishness, the guy may have more respect for you. This, this, I, I, can't, I can't tell you what a revelation this was. To people, once upon a you know, I'm going to tell you a story. I remember reading this in college long ago. There was a guy named uh, Seton Watts, I think, and he was the publisher of uh, the London, the editor of the London Times, Arthur Seton Watts, I think his name was, or something like that. And uh, 
I read, you know, I read these nutty things. This was in college. I read a book that he wrote in 1905 uh, about visiting Austria-Hungary, uh, which to me was a fascinating subject. And, um, well, it is. What can I tell you? The, uh, I warned you we're going to be more intellectual tonight. And one of the, and one of the very fascinating chapters he has is, um, is uh, about the Jews, the encounters. And he's a journalist. He was the head of the, uh, the London Times. And I'm, I just am recalling one story in particular, and that was that this was in Budapest, and, uh, which is the Austrian Empire, and there was a certain guy, a completely alienated Jew, who uh, is Jewish nevertheless, and invites all of his Galicia friends to go out on a Friday night or a Saturday night for a night on the town in the cabarets and so forth, the red light district or whatever, you know, party scene. And he's the Jew, and he's bringing five or ten friends who are not Jewish, and everything is closed, and they can't understand. How come the, 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 you know, how come the, the Caesar's Palace and everything is closed? And the answer is this Yom Kippur. Because it was still at that time, it was more traditional. Everything was so. He was so ashamed in front of his friends, he committed suicide the next day. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't know. I'm trying to tell you, you know. You, 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 don't, you don't understand. That, that, that's what it was. And so, uh, and here comes a Herzl or somebody that says, like, this is Lozu Aderech. And the best and the young people, like, like a 15-year-old Jabotinsky and others, they say, this is the way to go. We can feel proud of Jewish. Now, mind you, this has nothing with Judaism as a religion. On the contrary, the secularity of, of Herzl was the selling point for these westernized people. If he would have been from there, ah, he's a fundamentalist, you know, he's, he's living intellectual ghetto, Precisely the fact that he's like us. He don't believe anything either. And yet he finds in his Jewish identity a source of pride and something to build up. That talks to me. Because people saw that here, here, there, there, this young person, this young girl, this young guy, this teenager, this college student here, is for the first time having a positive attitude towards the Hebrew language, towards Jewish symbols, towards Judaism. That's why there are many rabbis in Eastern Europe. People don't know this. Um, who appreciate the positive effect he's having on Jewish pride among the less from youth and even among the from youth, to be perfectly honest. So here's four famous names once upon a time from 100 years ago, 110 years ago, um, who were uh, big fans of Herzl. You'd be surprised. This is uh, Rob Searlson, who became, uh, he was one of the big gedolim. He later on founded the Aguda. You know, he was uh, one of the great rabbis in Eastern Europe, eventually in Kishinev. Rav Cook was still young at that time. Shlomo Kohn, he was the chief rabbi de facto of Vilna. And maybe you've heard of the place. In fact, I mean, I know some of you have heard of the Vilna Shahs. He made the Vilna Shahs. Okay? And when Herzl came to visit St. Petersburg in 1903, I think it was, or 1904, to talk to the Russian government, he passed through Vilna, and he, of all people, led a delegation out to the train station to meet Herzl, carrying a safer Torah, as if it was, uh, you know, a, a, a Geisha king or something like that. Uh, this will not get in the books. Okay? But it's not, on, to be perfectly honest, it is in the books. It's just not in the art school books. The uh, <laughs> uh, Elio Akiva Rabinowitz, he founded what you would call today uh, Yated Neman. You get it? He, Hapeles was the newspaper, right? And uh, this was the ultra-Orthodox newspaper. But all these people were rabbis that had communities. And they saw the teenagers in the community. And it's not the Zaidi that counts, because the Zaidi's already old and he's going to be in the shul until he dies. But where's the grandchildren? <laughs> And so we're the younger generation. And now, for the first time, you see the, the grandson with a cap of a Russian university student or something like this, 
but he's not making fun of Jewish stuff anymore. And so they didn't approve of the fact that Herzl was an atheist and all the rest of it, but they said like this, listen, he's, he's a tinnik shanishba, he doesn't know, but they're obviously going in the right direction, you see? Now later, after Herzl died, Zionism took a different direction and came dominated by uh, Achana'am and people like that, um, and then they sought to displace uh, traditional Judaism with something else, and then a war broke out, and then uh, he started the Agoda in 1912 as a reaction to that. What I'm trying to say is like this, many of the people who he brought into the Agoda were disillusioned Zionists, like Elia Kiva Rabinowitz and others that I just pointed out before, and Ralph Cook, to be perfectly honest, you understand? Who was on his way to the Agoda Convention and, 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 and didn't quite make it. The, um, uh, because, because they said, like, this is not what we had in mind. But what Herzl was doing, we did like. In Germany, Germany, Zionism, if you go back 100, 120 years ago, was very controversial because the Federation Jews, as we call today, the establishment Jews, opposed it as not being patriotic. You see? A Jew is just a religious category, but really you're German. You follow? And your whole thing, uh, right now, was the head of General Electric. Okay, his father made General Electric. Of this country, meaning they started in Germany and, made it, and they brought it to America. Uh, Balin was the Kaiser's best friend, even though the Kaiser hated Jews. But the reason is, he built up the German shipping industry out of Hamburg. You understand? And a hundred years ago, the Germans uh, ran all the uh, transport and the luxury. He invented, by the way, he, just for curiosity's sake, he invented the luxury liner, a Yiddish cub. He figured he's got, he's got ships that have to go to the Mediterranean anyway. Fix the ship up like a Pesach hotel, and they can charge a fortune for the thing, and, 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 and he turned into a big business. Uh, this, this guy was the leading reform rabbi in Germany, Seligman. Oh, he thought the biggest Avera in Judaism is not Gila Reis, Shrikh Adam, Avodah Zionism. <laughs> you understand? Because uh, how can, a Jew is just a religion. Get it? Now, as far as religion is concerned, you should be, you can do whatever you want. Uh, as a reformed Jew, he'd be more German. But in terms of politics, Judaism has no political uh, agenda. Otherwise, what are we doing in Germany? Then we're we're a fifth column. So this is what you had to put up with at at, at that time. Ratnow, by the way, wrote a book called, you won't believe this, called Shema Yisrael, Hero Hero Israel, you know, Hero Israel, in which he says, you know, Jews have to understand when you go to a hotel, keep your mouth shut. Don't make a lot of noise. Don't call attention to yourself. I mean, you won't believe it. You know, don't let your kids run around because the Goyim can do it, but you can't do it. You see? Now, the truth of the matter is, if you're raised like I am, then if you're wearing a yarmulke, yeah, I tell my children the same thing. But he's talking about in general. It's a self-loathing, you see? Now, um, but the best of the German youth, the German Jewish youth of 1890, of 1900, of 1910, 1915, the best of them will be Zionist because they're going to have pride in one fashion or another. Even the Orthodox, as I said before, would have been Zionist if the Zionism didn't go in the wrong uh, direction. Uh, these are the guys that messed it up uh, because they took what they call a cultural Zionism, which was a different agenda and wasn't concerned much with building a, a Jewish state, but rather in transforming Judaism into a modern Jewish culture, which meant an atheist Jewish culture. And that's a different thing altogether. Um, now it's not the time to go into this in detail, but I could give a human speech that would get me kicked out of this show if you, but if you want to know what really happened. Now, if you understand all this, well, I'm talking about the times that I'm speaking about, then you'll start to understand 
who are subject to this tonight, Fritz Baer, who, as you can see, lived right through this, right? 1888 and 1980, lived right, right, right through this whole, uh, this whole era. Now, uh, Baer was born in Halberstadt, which is not that far from uh, 130 miles from Berlin, and, uh, right? It's uh, up there in northern Germany, and uh, old Jewish community. As a matter of fact, the community founded by the Laymans. I don't think your family, but, uh, I, but it's uh, well-known from the court Jews of yesteryear, the Hofjude. And, um, and they have a very rich Jewish history. Let's put it this way. I know most of you haven't heard of Halberstadt. Halberstadt was a Malcolm Torah in the 1600s, 1700s. They had some millionaire Jews who supported very strongly Jewish educational institutions. So they had a Kloys, which would be like today a Kolel, and a Yeshiva, and all, that, all, all the sorts of things you're talking about over here. Um, and in the 1800s and the early 1900s, the, they had uh, the, the Hirsch family. This is no relation to the same story of Hirsch. It was called Hirsch Halberstadt, where they were uh, from, and the multimillionaires, they supplied the German army with all the weapons. Isn't that amazing? They, because it's near the Hartz Mountains. So early in the 1800s, they built a type of modern foundries and factories or whatever it takes to create the, the, the bullets and the cannons and all that sort of thing. And so I, I, I realize how, how funny it sounds, but uh, when the German armaments industry in the 1800s and the early, in the Kaiser's time, when they had their annual banquet, right, it was kosher, okay? So it's a little strange, but nevertheless, it's there. And I mention that because, therefore, since if they lived in that community, then that's going to be one of the few communities in which the, the Grossgemeinde is orthodox, which means you don't have to do like Sam Strayvler's that separation community, all that's taken over by the reform. This is one of the very few communities in Germany where an old established community was the, the votes were taken over by the Orthodox because everybody worked for him. <laughs> you got to vote his way. You understand? And, uh, and, and that's what it was. His, uh, this guy's uh, brother-in-law was Hildesheimer. Okay? The famous rabbi. In fact, in fact Hildesheimer was married to his uh, sister and therefore his whole life he never had to worry about money and that's how he could build the Hildesheimer Seminary in the yeshiva. And on his wife's grave, this is very nice, on his wife's grave, when she passed away, look what he wrote. Baal ureho rak al yadeo tofas yeshiva kol Which means the, the husband of her youth, meaning they were married for decades. So he says, the husband who loved her, it was only through her that he was able to maintain the yeshiva all of her life. And there's a wonderful memoir, by the way, of Hildesheimer's daughter uh, when they grew up in, uh, later when he was in Berlin. And uh, basically, the, the rich relatives would visit every once in a while. <laughs> this is nice if you can get it. And they'd take whole big wads of cash and put it un- under the underwear <laughs> in, in the bedroom. And whenever, whenever the family needed money, like they didn't write checks, you know what I mean? They always just pulled out the, the cash as they needed them. Um, so it's good if you can get that. The point is, that uh, this is an unusual, this is an unusual community, and uh, if Bear's family, Fritz Bear, if his family grew up there, so they grew up there, I would say traditional. The word Orthodox might not be right because in communities like this, there wasn't a clash between the Reform and the Orthodox. Most people, some were more observant, some were a little less observant, some this and that and the other. But the the show is going to be a show, and the school is going to be a school, and it's to be run in a certain way. Um, but it's not going to be this Sam Stravler's hyper, you know, anti. Reform kind of atmosphere, and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, his father's side were business people, right? He came from you know the parent father was a business family, but his mother's side, her her father. This is you know, in history, one of the most interesting things is to study the historians, which is what we're doing tonight. His mother's father was a rabbi. Uh, his name was Dessau, 
Samuel Dessau. Samuel Dessau's sons, you know, one of them married this businessman, and then she had two brothers. The two brothers both were big academics. And Shomer Shabbos, okay? Uh, his, he had one uncle, Herman Dessau, who um, was one of the first Jews who uh, got into a history department. And like a Jew, he attached himself to the leading historian in the world. Okay? And he became the uh, personal secretary of Mumsen. Theodor Mumsen was the, was the leading German historian, maybe of all times, and certainly in the 1800s. He was world famous. Mark Twain wrote a book about him. Okay? Yes. And, um, and, he, and, he, uh, and he was a famous liberal and all this sort of thing. So here is uh, Mumsen. Here's the uh, Jewish secretary, right? Here's Mommsen's famous book that made him world famous. He wrote like a five, six, seven volume book of the Roman Empire. He was Mr. Roman Empire, okay? Uh, we're translated in every language. I can't tell you what a leading and famous person uh, Mommsen was, uh, but Mommsen was, uh, and this is very typical of the 19th century, he was opposed to anti-Semitism, but he didn't like Jews. Meaning, he said, I guess, they shouldn't withdraw the civil rights, and they shouldn't persecute people and things like that. On the other hand, the best thing for the Jews, you know, I'm not forcing anybody, I think Jews will just to assimilate, maybe become Christian, just, you know, get out of the way. You understand? But life is stranger than that because his assistant is a Shem Shabbos. <laughs> you understand? And what's really interesting is he goes on, I mean, this is just, you're never going to hear this anywhere else. So he says, he goes on to become the world's expert on Roman epigraphy, because he did, he did uh, field assignments from Mumsen. So he becomes the world's expert on Roman tombstones and inscriptions carved in the, in, in the world. Nobody knows it like him. And um, this is uh, not unknown. In all these years, he can never get a position in the university. Um, but he gets these semi-positions. And like late in life, after he won all the Nobel Prizes for Roman epigraphy and all the rest of it, you know, like when he was... About to retire, they gave him a professorship because so, they know it's a year. You understand? But at least he's like, as he climbed to the top of the pole without sacrificing his Jewishness. And once upon a time, that was called the Kedesh Hashem. If you, if you understand where I'm, where, where, where I'm coming from, and I think you do. Uh, so, and I just want to say, one of the things he does, Momsen wrote many books. And one of them was, these are very famous, I'm sure it's all online. And one of the books is about the provinces of the Roman Empire. Gaul, Greece, Egypt, Palestine, Judea. And one is about Judea. And Momsen is a guy. And he, see, he sympathizes with the Romans. So he says, oh, Judea was a pain in the neck for the Roman Empire. He uses stronger language. And, uh, and viewed from the Romans, the Jews are, you know, a lot of trouble and so on and so forth. He does not agree with that. And he therefore wrote a book called Correction to Momsen's Description of Judea. You understand? Uh, this is what it really like, because he's a Jew. You see, he knows more about the Roman Empire than anybody else except Momsen, but he's a Jew. And I'm trying to tell you, so this guy's coming out of a family in which you completely embrace the German culture at its best, you completely embrace the German academic rigor and so forth, but you're a Jew. You take nothing off of nobody. It's just interesting. Um, he had another, she, his mother had another brother who became a physics professor. But a physics professor, he didn't have anybody to attach to. You were not getting a job in Germany, in the Kaiser's time, in university, as a physicist, it's not happening. So you know what many Jews end up doing? They get jobs in other countries in Europe. Go to the Tijuana Medical School, you get it? Go to Acapulco, That's, that, that, that is what they do. Except that here you're talking about Belgium, maybe France, 
Holland, Switzerland. He goes to Italy to Uncle Bernard, which called Bernardo, <laughs> right? And uh, Bernardo Desso. And he ends up, uh, he, can't get a, he can't get a career in, in Germany, but you can get a career in Italy. I want you to understand what I'm talking about. Here's a guy who comes out of the best scientific training out of a German university. I forget which one he went to. So there's nobody in Italy who has that level of scientific knowledge, right, with his training. And so he will get a job, and eventually he becomes the full professor of physics in uh, the University of Perugia, which is in the central Italy. And I remember many years ago when I first did that paper, so I did a little homework, and I looked at an old German-Jewish encyclopedia and I, under uh, Dessau, and Bernard Dessau in German is, I guess, he's the professor of physics in the University of Perugia. He's also the Sheikhid. <laughs> Right? And, it's, and, and I totally understand. This is the term Derek has once upon a time. You get it? There's nobody in Perugia, like a small community, that knows anything about this. You've got you to have kosher food. Um, in a more serious note, perhaps, he's the founder of Zionism in Italy. Okay? What, I, what I mean to say is, we'll see this later with Ra, there's all kinds of professors out there. Some of them are running away from their Jewishness, and some of them say, my house is an open house to Jewish students on Saturday, on Friday night. Because where else are they going to find anything Jewish? And uh, that's a pain in the neck to have kids running all over your house, all the rest of it. But nevertheless, the ones who care, care, and, and you'll be the sheikh too. So I'm trying to tell you the family he's, uh, he's coming out of. It's an intellectually aware and a rambunctious family. You can imagine whenever they get together, they're arguing about intellectual matters and academic matters, all the rest of it. The father probably has nothing to say whatsoever. And they're observant. And his, his home was in the middle of the Judengasse in Halberstadt, uh, meaning on one side of it, uh, his house was located on one side was the synagogue with the shul and the other side was the, um, uh, the day school. Okay, So he grows up in a Jewish Jewish atmosphere and yet in spite of what I just said there's no yeshiva or anything like that um, and so his parents, as many did at that time, this is before day schools were a big item so he has a Jewish education with, uh, you know, the, the elementary school, the Jewish uh, community. But what do you do for high school? That's something serious already. And uh, we'll get him a tutor to learn with him, you know, in the afternoon. But he's got to go to Gilman, to Boys Latin. He's got to go to a first-class school, correct? Over there, I mean, the equipment. He goes to a humanistic gymnasium, which they had, the Kaiser Friedrich one, which was a famous one once upon a time. So he goes, so basically he's getting a, fir- a third-class Jewish education, but he's getting a first-class uh, modern European education, I mean, really a first-class education, and he's obviously interested in history. Uh, there are a few nuts out there from early on that they're interested in this sort of thing, to eat it up, and that's who he is. And as I say before, he's getting the best high school and college tutors because, uh, uh, the, you know, in those days, the Ger- I told you once, the German gymnasium, they say like this, look on the right and look at the left because two will be kicked out. You know, the, the, you have to write like two, three papers a week. And anybody said, this is too much. They said, no problem. Here's a door. <laughs> okay? no, no such thing as remedial like they have now, you know, remedial reading and things of that nature. So this is what it is. He goes on afterwards to German university. So this is like, uh, what, 1907, 1908, 1909. Uh, so this is the heyday of the German universities in Kaiser Wilhelm's time when they were at the peak of their forum. And... He goes, as many did at that time, to four different universities because, you know, you want to get the best professor here for this and the best professor for that. And he ends up hooking up, teaming up with this guy, uh, uh, Heinrich Fink, who uh, was a very famous historian of, of that time. Fink is a uh, well-known in the German history field and actually the world history field. Can we go to the next one? Yeah. Uh, not Jewish, a Catholic. 
And uh, he's, the num he's basically Germany's number one medieval historian. He had his own life because he, this is Prussia I'm talking about. Prussia in the late 1800s, under Kaiser's time, not friendly to Catholics. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this. Uh, Bismarck had a milchama with the Pope. It's called the Kulturkampf, okay? And uh, that's because he thought the Catholics are not loyal to Germany and so on and so forth. And therefore, it's pretty true, if you're a Catholic, you're not getting a teaching position, a good, a good job in a Prussian university either. You understand? It was a tough situation. And the only way you can do it is like the Jews do it. You have to be that good, they eventually force your way in on merit. You follow? So here you have a Jewish student going under a guy like this, and he, how do you get the, the merit? He becomes what they used to call the ox of the archives, which means he's willing to spend more time and weighted the more dusty material in old you know, libraries and monasteries and this kind of stuff and get, through and get his hands dirty more than anyone else because that's the only way that you can get ahead because if you're a minority, you can only do it by excelling the majority. Agreed? At least that's the good way of doing it anyway. And so he eventually becomes, as I say before, uh, even though he's growing up in the, in the battle between them and them, he becomes the world's expert. He writes a, a dozen books, um, once upon a time, on the kingdom of Aragon in the time of James I, which may seem like a snoozer to you, but wasn't. And it, and, and it, and it, and it became world famous in the history world. And by the way, he explains, he was interested in this kingdom which was once in Spain, this is the guy of the Ramban. He's, he's the king of the debate of the Ramban. So he's not a little person at all. He's actually very famous. I know he's not famous, yet, but he's, he's a very famous person. And uh, he writes about all the international politics that's going on between Aragon and France and, and, and in the Holy Roman Empire and England and this and that and the other and ties it all together. And you have to do a lot of work to, to, to get that. He didn't read it off somebody else's book. You understand? He had to go and look in the original junk in England and all, and Spain and Spain and Spain uh, over and over again, and in the German places, and dig up things that nobody had heard of, and reread them, you know, all that kind of business. And he was willing to do it. And so when he finally published his work, the academic world was astonished. And uh, the truth of the matter is, even the non academic world, all I can tell you is once upon a time, he was a big deal. Uh, he, goes, he makes many trips to Spain, especially Barcelona, and he, to wade through all the centuries old documents. And, uh, and, and he's got a, and, and by the time I'm talking about, he already became a, a professor, and he's got his students, and just as in any group, he's got a bunch of students and a Jew. <laughs> okay? This is Fritz Baer from Halberstadt. He got a Jew. And uh, what's he learning from the professor? Go on all the trips, go through all this stuff. He learns from him diplomatics. I don't think you even know what the word diplomatics means, right? Not diplomacy. It's a scholarly discipline on the critical analysis of documents and especially on the conventions, protocols, and formulae being used by document creators. In other words, what does it mean when you read something from the 900s? What kind of paper was it written? What does that tell you? What kind of Latin is used? What are the uh, Russia Tavis? You know, when did he use an X of uh, and when did he use an X of that? And when did he use this letter? And when is it Roman numerals? And when is not Roman numerals? All the stupid little things, which of course are not stupid at all. Okay? This is a highly arcane um, field that very few people care about and, and are getting into, but you can't be a medieval historian for real without this kind of stuff. I just wanted to teach you a word for the uh, SATs. Anyway, the, uh, okay, now uh, think, as I said before, with a full professor. So therefore, in the university, when you get to university in Germany, you're already a, uh, a grad school. And so he has a number of graduate students. And since he's doing everything in the world about the kingdom of Aragon, 
So you tell me, what is the Jewish student going to do his dissertation on? The Jews of Aragon. <laughs> okay, you know, the Jew and the elephant, as they say over here. And of course, he published a famous dividend, The Studies in History of the Jews in the Kingdom of Aragon in the 13th Century, and so forth. It became a classic in Jewish history, just not among you who can't read German, but out there it did once, I promise you. Student in the Juden and Königreichen Aragonian, the history of Jews, in which he does what Fink is doing. He just, Fink will say like this, I'm looking at what the king did. Oh, here's some Jewish junk. Uh, I'll give it to, to Bear. You might want to look in this in this place. I see they have this all Jewish business. It doesn't concern me, but you can use it for your dissertation. And you may want to follow it up on later on. And if I, you get what I'm saying? No, this is how it went. And I'm talking about Spain before Franco's war in the 30s, the Civil War, in which they all bombed each other and blew up a lot of documents. At this time, the stuff was still there. And so it's, you'll see he'll build his career on going to uh, a library somewhere or a university somewhere and finding letters from the Ramban. It's not what you think. You understand? There was a, there was a ton of material evidence, documentary evidence, more than anybody would have imagined, in different places in Spain, in Barcelona, in Valencia, in Toledo. It's, it's, it's not what you think. Okay? Now, um, so here's a Jew who graduates in 1913, by the way, cum laude, you know, top of the form, with an extremely fine professional training in doing medieval history in the best German methodological manner. He can understand the Geisha documents like no way can, because he got the training from the guy. Okay? He can understand all the Alhama documents, all the Jewish documents. He can read Hebrew, because he's from Halberstadt, from a religious family. So you can understand if he reads something where the Jewish community is writing to the king or the, other, or the Jewish community is writing to other Jews in Hebrew. You see, see he can do things that Fink can't do. You understand? So this is a person with, who's put together in the right place. The one problem is he doesn't know how to learn. He then went to yeshivas or rabbinics. Fink cannot help him in that. You understand? As the Gemara and, and the, 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 the Rishonim and that, that, that kind of business. And, and that is going to be an Achilles heel, as we will see uh, later on, it's Achilles of all the historians. They don't know to learn. So they'll have to work around that. Fink's remarkable efforts help him break into the Prussian professoriate, despite his Catholicism, as I told you before. The system was against him, but he, he beat it. Can a Jew like Bear do the same thing? Can he, through his merits, break through into the Prussian history department and get accepted as, as, as an actual faculty member, all the rest of it? The answer is no. This is Germany, they, they, they don't do it. You get it? You There's all kind of anti-Semitism out there. In the time I'm talking about 1913, there was nothing like Hitler at all. Not at all. Germany was a country of law and order, nothing at all. But at the intellectual level and at the professional level, there was. You see? This is famous. A Jew cannot become an officer. And a Jew cannot teach in a high school. And a Jew cannot become a professor. So therefore, become a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman and, and, and work for yourself. This is the message that's sent out there. In 1913, there was a scandal. Seven professors, I said it wrong, seven Jews in Strasbourg converted to Christianity to get a professor position in one university, the university that he was studying in. Okay? So, I, 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 you can't blame them if you follow what I mean by that. You know, it was a, it's a tough call, but it's sad. You see? Now, what about a career? <laughs> and now he's uh, 23, I guess, 24. Actually, 25. See, 25. And he got the best PhD in the world in medieval history. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> okay? Uh, Jewish history? There is no such thing. There's no position. And what kind of a career is it anyway? But he doesn't want to become a medievalist. He wants to become a Jewish historian, do the Jewish Middle Ages. 
That's great, but where are you going to find that? It's a Zionist career. You understand? It's a career where he says like this, I have the training, and I assert that my people are no worse than anybody else, and I want to do them. There's only one little problem. There's no job for that. But fortunately, uh, the World War I breaks out right then. That takes care in the next four years, because he's drafted in the German army. And here you have the number one Jewish professor in Israel, served four years in the Kaiser's army in the artillery corps, which is why he survived. First of all, he's on the Eastern Front, so the, the losses were less. And second of all, the artillery's in the rear. <laughs> you understand? And by the way, it's famous. He said like this, I didn't have one minute of anti-Semitism in the German army. I was there for four years, which is, which is just interesting. Um, Bayer serves in the military. There were, as you see over here, I bet you there are people in this room who had relatives or ancestors who served in the German army in the First World War. Like here, here's a, look, these are Jews with the Prussian helmet and all the rest of it. You understand? It's the Shabbos services. They had, there are plenty of that. Okay? Um, even more, Bayer is stationed on the Eastern Front. That means, like the German Jews of his generation, he shares in what they call the encounter mit den Osten, with the East. And, and, and this is just a, a, a fascinating cultural moment in Jewish history, which deserves its own lecture. And that is, he had all these assimilated German Jews, and even the Orthodox were assimilated in the sense that they never met Eastern-type Jews, all the rest of it. And then the war brings them, in, a soldier in the army, to Lithuania, to Poland, to Galicia, to the Ukraine, and they're amazed. They come to communities in which it's not you take your yarmulke off, you know, as soon as you get out of shul or something like that, and you kind of hide your Jewish thing, even if you're Jewish. It's, it's, it's a world. Hey, here's from Herman Struck, a famous uh, um, Orthodox Jewish artist who serves in the German army in the First World War. Uh, Herman Struck is one of the founders of the Mizrahi, of the religious Zionist movement. Okay? And he was uh, growing up in Berlin, and he, as you can sort of see, he, he was the number, that's him, he says that was the, he was the number one uh, artist with etchings, with uh, uh, charcoal maybe or something like that, I don't know, you know, whatever it was that he did, I, th I think Harit they call it, I think it's charcoal, but he was the, the leading artist in Germany, everybody knows this, they admit it, when it comes to etching with charcoal, but he's a Zionist, so this is in the Kaiser's Germany, they won't let him exhibit his pictures because he insists, instead of signing his pictures, Herman Struck, Chaim Aaron Ben Yaakov, I put in Hebrew, and sometimes, even worse, he'll put a Star of David on there. You get what I'm saying? And that's Herzl. He says, I'm, a Jew. I'm not worse than you. Okay? And if my stuff is good, it's good. If not, then, 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 then he, uh, you know, I have a suggestion for you. So he has, he has no, I mean, they're fascinating. He has, he, uh, you don't see in, in, in Germany a Jewish shoemaker you know, who goes this all the way. You don't see this type of girl over there. As you can see, he, he sketched Chaim Brisker, Chaim Salvation. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, and there are dozens of these. If you go, now that I told you, go online if you're interested. You go Herman Struckle Images, you'll see, like, I think all of his etchings, which are world famous and, and now uh, charge a lot of money. Okay? He later on, by the way, just so you should know this, he later on in 1922 moved to Tel Aviv. He spent the rest of his life in Israel. He died. He was, he was, and his son was also a big banker or something like that. So uh, th these are people who are coming out of the Herzl period of, of, of Zionism, as, as, as you can see. Um, and so Bayer is, as I say before, if anything, getting an extra shot of Judaism by his army experience. There's a lot more to talk about that, but I won't. Um, now the war's over. It's 1919. And what do you do? You have a great PhD in medieval history. What do you, what, what do, you do with that? Uh, all that beautiful training. What do you become, a, a cab driver? What do you do? Well, during the war, um, German Jewry, and again, this is for specialists in German Jewry, 
underwent many transformations because the war ripped things up and the encounter with the Jewish masses in the East left a powerful impression upon the Jewish soldier. I'll give you an example. A lot of Reformed Jews came there and they came back home and said, I guess, this Judaism here is a joke. I didn't say they want to become you know, Shomer Shabbos, but I said, but this, this Judaism is a joke. There you have real organic Judaism. They, they're, they, they're open with it. They talk Yiddish. They, you know, they live that life and all that sort of thing. And here, it's ridiculous. Many of the Orthodox Jews, they say, German Jewish Orthodoxy is a joke. You understand? And people like the Chavetz Chaim and others wrote public letters saying, uh, because he heard about it, he said, come on and study in the uh, yeshivas in the East. And they do in the 1920s and 30s. That's how it happens. That for the first time ever, boys from middle-class German Jewish families, like Rabbi Schwab and Leonard Neuberger and people like that, even though they're from Germany, but they go to Lithuania and places like that, because all part of the counter of ur Judentum, you know, the, the original, the real, the real uh, Judaism. So d- not everybody felt that way, but during the course of the First World War, two of the leading German Jewish intellectuals, not from Hermann Kohn, uh, was a, a, actually, he's a rare case of a Jewish Jew who got a full professor in philosophy. You know, he was considered a god. I mean, they, they didn't even know how he did it. You understand? He was conservative. And Rosenzweig, uh, maybe you heard him, the star of uh, Redemption. So they said like this, that German Jewry uh, is in a bad state, like American Jewry today would be. You know, they're not, the, the, the general mass of American Jewry in a bad state. And what do we want to do about this? We need a, a Jewish renaissance, a Judaic renaissance. And so Martin Buber is writing about this. The people say we've got to change things. As usual, they want true Judaism, but they don't want orthodoxy. Because uh, Rabbi Breuer... Let's do the next one. Yeah. Right, Breuer hears about this. He says, the true Judaism come to my yeshiva. <laughs> I'm serious. He wrote a book like that. cared some Judentums. Come home to Judaism. They don't want to go to Breuer's yeshiva. <laughs> That's not what they want to do. But they want true Judaism. And how do you do it? So Cohn and Rosenzweig, they uh, uh, write articles that they want a school to create a core of master teachers. You got there. Isn't that interesting? And they go teach out the German youth. But, 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 but the... But the, uh, it, it won't go anywhere, right? That's not the, 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 the project that wins the support. Cohn dies, and a young historian named Eugen Teibler uh, turns it into something else, an institute for high-level, first-rate historical research. Okay? Um, he, that's what he says. So we have to have the, the Jewish analog of the German glorious technological culture, the Institute of Pure Research, Torah Lishma. The, 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 the point of the sphere of German scientific and cultural superiority in those years was what you see over here, Kaiser Wilhelm's Institute of Research. Here's the Kaiser with the scientists. They're actually dressed, standing like soldiers. Okay? And Einstein was a member of this. So, I mean, they, you know, they had big names. Germany forged ahead of all the other countries because they actually created what they called the Hochschule, which means it's pure research. You understand? You don't bother with all the little stuff. And they, that made them the cutting edge. Uh, Oppenheimer from America went to, 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 to Germany to learn physics. You understand? They, they, they had it at one time. And therefore, the highest level of intellectuality is to have an institute with, with the top people just thinking, you know, doing pure research in their field. And by the way, uh, in, in sciences and all, also in history and in the social sciences. Uh, oh my goodness, in Germany, the study of history, government support. And they'll have the high, pure research things where these guys just go out and assemble these documents and devote all the time, to, as you can do with, with, um, with uh, research. Look, there are two competing visions, which are even around today. What's better, to have a bunch of good teachers all over the place or to have the highest researchers 
and experts in the world. Uh, Tabler prevails, the guy who wanted the, the research institute, what they called the Akademie for Yiddish Wissenschaft, uh, with the help of Hermann Dessau, because uh, that was uh, Bear's uncle, the guy who was Momsen's uh, assistant, sees the Roman epigrapher. No, sees by this time he's, a, he's old man, he's a professor at the University of Berlin. He said, oh, what we really need is pure research. You see, naturally, he's a professor. And uh, what, what, what's the result? That Tabler, this is when he was younger, he uh, founds the Institute, which has money, and um, he hires a few uh, crazy young people who are totally into Jewish history, including Selma Stern, who he marries. I know she looks like a guy, but, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, that, 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 that's his wife. And, um, they, and, and then they went on to become a famous couple in Jewish history and all the rest of it. Um, she writes about the Jews in the Prussian state. And it's a vision of pure intellectuality, what kind of, in, the, in the German sense. And Fritz Baer, who happened to be the nephew of Dessau, is hired as a full-time researcher, and that's what he does for the next decade. Okay? So what do he do for a living? He's in a, he has a PhD, but doesn't use it. He's a full-time history researcher in, a, in, a, in, a, in an academy, which means a German institute in which pure research is, is held in high madrega. It's a job. It's not a university job, but it's a Zionist job. He's taking all of his training and applying it to the Jewish past. The guy don't appreciate the Jewish past, so we will. And the guy won't have fund a high-level institute for Jewish historical research, so we will. You understand? And they won't provide the funds to go and do, you know, getting all the documents and all kinds, so we will. You see? And you have to be built in a certain way and care a lot about this. The average person cares about putting bread on the table, making a living, all the rest of it. But the average person isn't 30 years old without a job with a, with a PhD in medieval history. Okay? And so uh, that's what happened. Now, Teubler, who founded this institution, was a famous person. He inspires his staff to do Jewish history right. We are bringing in a revolution in the Jewish understanding of the past. Gretz, all these guys, losers. You understand? All they did was literaturgeschichte, literary history from published books and pamphlets. After all, Gretz, Gretz didn't have the time and the, and the possibility to go out and, and search for original thing. So when you read Gretz, if anybody published a book in 1550, it'll probably end up being in Gretz and it'll evaluate. If somebody published a pamphlet cussing out someone else, it'll be in Gretz. You know, that's, that's a, uh, not to take away from him. That was quite a, a, a monumental task to stitch together 2,000 years of Jewish history or more from the published material out there. But we all know that what's not published is often more interesting than what is. And you can't really find out what's going on unless you do so, dig up the dirt. And so Tabler says, no, we have to come up with archival material and re-understand the Jewish past because if we don't have a real understanding of who we were, then we don't have a real understanding of who we are. And the number one problem in Jewish life today is we don't know who we are because all the people out there are dumb and stupid. They, have, they just know they're Jewish. They have no idea what it means and therefore they're making poor choices. Right? You have millionaires and zillionaires who spend money on everything else and nothing Jewish because they don't know who they are, because they don't know who they were. And it doesn't mean anything to them. So it's a dangerous thing to have uneducated Jews because then you don't support your own. So we have to come up with the real stuff. Um, as I say before, uh, I would even go farther. You won't understand Jewish history unless you know all the Gaisha stuff as well and you have to find the Gentile documents. So I need all the documents that are left. If the Rajma wrote a love letter, you want that. But you also want if the Jewish community wrote something uh, to, by way of a takano or killing somebody or whatever they did, you want that. And if somebody's complaining about scandals in Jewish community, you want that. And if the king and his council had anything to say about Jews, you want that too. You see, you've got to do a lot of work to, to, to come up with this stuff. Gretz also came with a German 
rationalist bias, he said. Problem with Gretz is he was measuring everything against rationality. We must come with a nationalist bias. You understand? We have to come with a, every historian has a prejudice of one kind or another. I got mine. Everybody prejudices one, one kind or another. Uh, don't believe for a minute if they say they don't. But what is it? Gretz was thinking that the 18th century rationalism uh, is there. Therefore, anything in Judaism which didn't comport with 18th century rationalism was bad. I'll give you an example. Kabbalah, Hasidus, all the, you know, it's, it's a, the overflow was too bad. Anything that sounded good, any Jew who wrote a uh, math book was, is great. You see? That's his rationalist bias. We need a nationalist bias. You must have total control of what was happening in the, in the host country as well as what was happening in the Jewish community. You need Jewish as well as Geisha history in order for someone to be mastered. And he's 100% right about that, if you ask me. I'm so right. So you don't know who Sam Stravel Hirsch is unless you also know what's going on in Frankfurt at that time and what's going on in Germany at that time and how Hirsch, for example, was hired by the community in the wake of the 1848 uh, uprisings in which the Frankfurt community, the Geisha community, acted this and this way, and where's German culture? And I said, you know what I'm saying? Notice, don't, don't give me a, a book with this telling you about Hirsch or anybody else. I'm just picking a name at random without knowing what's going on in the host society. You see? Uh, Jewish history consists of the results. Now, you have to use, put your thinking cap on. Jewish history consists of the results of the pressure from outside forces about Jews and Judaism and the response of imminent for Jewish forces to that pressure. And the result of that clash is Jewish history. There never was and will be a Jewish community that doesn't have to wrestle with outside forces which are detrimental to it. But what does that mean? So how does the Jewish community, does it call forth the resources to fight it or react to it in such a way, or does it not do so? For example, today, right now, today in 2015, the vast majority of the American Jewish community, American Jews, are being subjected to powerful um, what shall I say, disintegrative forces, and they're not fighting back. There's no Jewish pressure against it. Right? That's the story of our times. It's quite remarkable, and uh, it is what it is, but there you have it. And the result is 80% intermarriage, for example, and, and, and worse uh, numbers like that. There's just no coming out of Jewish kishes to, to, to resist against it. Everybody has relatives. You all know what I'm talking about. Okay? It's not even a fight. Other communities, and especially in Jewish history, reacted differently. When you react, the clash and the results of that clash constitute Jewish history. It's a very thoughtful and interesting way of looking at the, uh, at the past. We need to gather all the archival and original documents we can, the same way to go and do it. No apologetics. The Arizal is just as important as the Rambam, not the Gretz, right? The, the Rambam was uh, the modern guy, fits with the rationalism. The Arizal was a nut. <laughs> you know, it's mysticism and things like that. So, Tabler and these guys say, all out with all that stuff, right? That's just, you know, the old 19th century bias of self-hating Jews. We have to value, there's nothing in the Jewish experience which is not equally valuable to anything else. Above all, the notion that the Jewish situation can only be normal in Israel, which is a powerful statement for a German Jew to make in 1919, okay? The only place Jews can be normal is in Israel. We are in Gullus, Galut as they call it. That very sense is constitutive, he argues, of Jewish history and Jewish, and Jewish identity. The fact of feeling a stranger is very good. When the Jews don't feel like that, they're gone and they assimilate and it's all over. These are controversial ideas and statements to be putting out there, and it never would happen that the First World War not caused the collapse of the Kaiser's Germany. You know. um, in the 1920s, therefore, Bear, Fritz Bear, who we're talking about, um, goes and focuses on Spain, because that's what his teacher did. And he makes a bunch of uh, subsidized 
uh, trips, in which he comes back with a treasure trove of documents. Oh my God. He discovers amazing things over there. He assembles a vast amount of original material and publishes it. This was not done in Jewish history. You know, a guy might have found a letter here and a little document there and something in the Geniza. Here, as I say before, he comes with all kinds of things. We start, we start to get historic facts supported by documents in the place of stories from the Sfarim, which are legendary. It's just baloney, because the Sfarim have a lot of stories, some of which are true and some which are total baloney, and some are mixtures of the two. It is the way it is, especially when you get to what they're describing in the Middle Ages. Get over it. You understand? And instead, the religious just say, oh, I get defensive. Don't say that, right? And they're saying like this, cut the baloney. Talk to me the truth. The standards of a historiographer, can you prove it? Can you demonstrate it? This, that, and the other. Okay? Um, and so, uh, just off, <laughs> include the documents to make the Jews look bad. You know, Gretz would say like this, <laughs> don't share that with the Goyim. Don't wash the uh, dirty linen. And I get that too. I understand that. But these guys say like this, you have dirty linen too, too. Okay? So we're putting it out there. And, and, and if you say anything about us, you can say the same thing about you. Have you heard of Henry VIII, for example? You, know, you, 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 you have all this, you heard of the, you know, whatever, the Borgias, whatever, you think of the Jews? What about, what about you? And so uh, that's what I was doing. The, the best one, I just picked this out of memory. This is really great, an example of bear finds in the 1920s. We all, I'm sure you know the story, more or less, of the Ramban's famous debate with Pablo Cristiani. And um, at the end, the Ramban writes, after the debate was over, the king called him in and said, I promised you safety, but I can't deliver. The Pope is breathing down my back, right? And uh, i got to get you out of this country for your own sake. I, can, I can't prevent you from getting arrested. I can only de- delay the process. Uh, I can't do a Jack Pollock, as they say, and get it yanked from the, uh, from the files. I can only you know, get it pushed off for a little bit and meanwhile get out of the country. That's why Ramban moves to Israel, right? And the king said like this, he says, I, do it. He said, I don't agree with you because I'm a Christian, you're a Jew. I never saw a bad cause defended so well, and I like you. And he says, and the king gave me 500 uh, maravedis, like you'd say today, 500, uh, like we say, uh, 5,000 pounds. Okay? And he gave me in there. It's a very nice story. Fritz Baer <laughs> goes to Barcelona, which was the headquarters of the, of the kingdom of, of, of Aragon, and he finds the letter... Uh, basically, the, the king went to a Jewish banker and said, give me 5,000 pounds. <laughs> and then he gave that money to the Ramban. So <laughs> he didn't give him a penny of his own money. You understand know what I'm saying? But you have, he found the receipt and all the things and how he, how he hit him up. He said, you know, I need the money and all the rest of it. And it goes to, that's the kind of cute little things you find by the thousands, by the hundreds at least. This electrifies the Jewish scholarly world. Here's a real historian. He knows all the Geisha stuff, as I put it, plus all the Jewish. He does amazing work with getting original documents. He knows the Spanish business, the Hebrew documents. Wow. These publications propel him in the 1920s to public attention. There's a new Hebrew university starting in Jerusalem. And they offer him a full professorship. And he takes it. And so here's a guy that goes from nothing to the peak of the profession overnight. Okay? He goes from nothing to full professor at the age of 40. He never had a job. And now he's, the person I'm talking about, the academic career, never had a job. And now he got a job. The, the, the number one job in the world, the most desirable position in the world, if you're a Jewish historian, okay, in a real uh, university, and the only university in the world with no anti Semitism. <laughs> Hebrew University. And that's one of the reasons the Hebrew University was founded. Okay? The others won't ever respect us. Got to get our own respect. Isn't that why they made, isn't that why they made Hebrew you? Okay? Now, 
uh, Bear went on to teach there for decades, and he became the leading historian in Palestine and later in Medinat Israel in the middle of the 20th century, a very faithful set of decades. So he went from a, nothing to the central center of Jewish, Zionist, and Israeli uh, uh, scholarship and consciousness. Um, he will be the voice of opposition to the Ben-Gurions who skipped the Middle Ages. The Zionist narrative classically was that of people like Ben-Gurion who said that all the time they were in Gullis it was just depressing. So consequently, Jewish history, the only interest in history is by a Rishon, by a Shana, because that's when Jews of Israel, and then when Josephus is over, uh, wake me up when we get back to the Zionist era of 19th century. You get it? Because all the other stuff there was just negative. You follow the Jews were in Gullis, they didn't amount to anything. He has no time, Ben-Gurion, for rabbinics and uh, you know, religion. And uh, it's in there. So the, the, the Middle Ages is not important. Obviously, that's not going to be a point of view that's going to represent itself to, to, to a person who has a PhD in medieval uh, history. And uh, he's going to make the case, no, you can't understand Zionism, you can't understand Judaism, you can't understand Israel, unless you understand the Middle Ages, because it's a formative period. Let me put it this way. Everything you and I do today comes from the Middle Ages, if you think about it. Even the term Ashkenaz and Sephard come from the Middle Ages. Okay? You, you, wh wh whether you like it or not, you know. Uh, we don't have anything in Judaism hardly uh, from the 20th century. We have a heck of a lot from uh, the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries. Uh, and, even, and even earlier. So you can't go and, and, and make a way. Uh, he comes in when the Hebrew University is trying to, to figure out what it is. There was a great debate. The Hebrew University, like everything else, was founded by one rich guy. And the one rich guy wanted his guy to be in charge. And because he was a rich guy, he put him in charge. The rich guy was, was uh, Warburg, Felix Warburg, who, uh, from New York and Hamburg. He's the son-in-law of Jacob Schiff. In other words, he's at the top of Wall Street. Uh, when, uh, he made the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank. Maybe you've heard of that. And, uh, uh, and his rabbi is uh, Judah Magnus from the uh, Temple, uh, Temple Manuel. And Judah Magnus is a Zionist, so he said, I'll make, a, I'll make a university, I'll give you the first quarter of a million, which was a lot of money, to found the Jewish Studies Department of the Hebrew University, that's the first department of Hebrew U, that's how they, that's how they started. Um, but I have a couple of conditions, and my first condition is, I want my rabbi to be the president. Uh, the other people who were found to get hated at Magnus, they said, who are you, you're nothing, you know, you're a reform rabbi, he had a PhD from uh, a, a Semitics, you know when he was in Reform Seminary in Germany learning. Uh, Magnus is from San Francisco. He's American. But he uh, went to HUC, to Hebrew Union College, and then he went for a year or two to Germany. And in Germany, he, he picked up the virus of Zionism. But uh, nevertheless, he's no heavy hitter whatsoever. But the guy with the money wants him, so he's the president. Weizmann and Einstein, he said, that's not what the Hebrew University, oh my God, we need a place that's like a high-level research with a leading academic figure you know, who commands respect, and not a reformed rabbi from New York City who's put him there, not because of the scholar credentials. And so there's huge fights, Jewish fights, in Hebrew U in the 20s and the 30s over this. Um, Magnus ends up picking a bunch of Yekis. And that, you know, become the professor in the Hebrew University, people who are either directly from German, German educated. Hebrew University becomes a bastion of the German type professors and therefore a bastion of the peaceniks. It's opposed to political Zionism. I don't know if you know this. From the Hebrew University professors, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, they'll be, like you would say today, J Street and uh, things like that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Magnus will, to the end of his life, in 1948, just before Israel becomes a state, he'll go to Truman and say, pull back the uh, recognition of Israel. Don't do this because uh, it's a beta, I want to buy a national state. But this, is, this is the world that we're talking about over here. 
Um, now, Bear, as they say, becomes the Yitzhak Bear becomes the uh, leader. He has to learn Hebrew. Now, you know what I mean. It's one thing, especially in those days, it's one thing to know Hebrew, it's another thing to speak Hebrew. And so he has to write all of his lectures for a couple of years. It's hard. He's a Yaki, he's a German, you know. But he's, he's going to do it. He is no master teacher of the slap of the back style. You know, he's not the, that kind of professor that sits around and shoots the bull with guys, all the rest of it. But he knows the Middle Ages, <laughs> like nobody else in the world. He knows his methodology. He knows how to train students. His job, as he sees it, is to be the first Zionist historian, to battle the Reformed Jews and the assimilationists who interpret Jewish history as the history of a religious confession, of a denomination. No, it's the history of a national group. We're not an ethnic group. We are a nation. Dubno, the famous historian, was a real jerk. And he goes around all the rest of his life. He's killed by the Germans. He, all the rest of us say, oh, it's just an ethnicity. We don't need Eretz Yisrael. The Kehillah, wherever the Jews are, is the best form of Jewish self-government. And we should have a diaspora nationalism. These guys were nuts. All right? And he really was nuts. And here's Bear and the other guy saying, that's all wrong. It's wrong. It's here. Kimitzion Tetzisero, the Rashi Yerushalayim. They may not mean it in the religious sense, but anything Jewish is going to have to operate that way, or it won't be grounded. It'll be something uh, that's not true. Enough with the apologetics already. You know, we're, we're past the 19th century. Let's not say only things that the guy will like. You see, let's tell it the way, the way it was. He founds the journal Sion, which is still around today, and that's the professional journal of the Jewish historians. He believes the Jewish people have a destiny. Of course, he doesn't know what it is. How can you? He's a German idealist. Therefore, every nation has a national soul. And the Jews are a nation too. Not less than the Germans. Not less than the Danes. We're not less than the the Dutch. Okay? Not less. And so they have their national thing. So we have ours. Okay? He's not a prophet. He doesn't know what it is. These German Zionist intellectuals were too acutely intelligent to be atheists. This is just interesting. They thought a lot. And you can't say, they didn't feel that there's nothing out there. But they were too European modern to be Jewish fundamentalists either. Hence, they yearned for a kind of religion, just not an Orthodox Judaism. In fact, the great hope of Zionism in those halcyon days was that Zionism would provide the Jews with a utopia. This is before Israel became a state. So people are dreaming and and putting all their dreams into this. Not just in the sense of a country devoid of anti-Semitism, but even so in terms of a new Judaism, one which offered all the comfort, hope, and meaning of the old religion, but which would conform to modern European culture. That's these people, Zol, Hanam, Buber, Weizmann, all the rest of it. They want, they don't know what it is, but we're in a, we're in a magnificent journey. We're going to find the Givaldica, Judaism, of the 20th century, the modern world, liberated from mythology, but which will give them the kind of satisfaction that we knew our Bubbies and Zadies had long before all this modernity kicked in. A large part of the comfort, strength, and meaning provided by the old Judaism derived from its sense, clear sense of history and teleology, this is where it's going, as in Daniel and the Four Kingdoms. Are you familiar with the biblical story, right, of Daniel and the, and the dream of Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, in which the head is gold and this is silver and so forth, and it's the Four Kingdoms, Right? It's in the Tanakh, I promise you, and uh, the Old Testament, that is. And, uh, and, and, and no, uh, and, uh, this is a, a seminal in Chazal. Get it? There are going to be four kingdoms and then the fifth kingdom, which is us. I found it's the inter- internet. They won't say this is the Jews, but that's the Jewish interpretation. If you're Christian, you'll say it's the Christian interpretation. You know, if you're Mormon, you'll say it's the Mormon interpretation. But 
But, but, but whatever it is, it's the four kingdoms, and it's repeated in another dream of Daniel, but the four monsters, in which case all of history is divided quadripartite. And again, if you know rabbinic literature at all, every pasuk and everything is related somehow. Somebody or other will relate it anytime you have a four. For example, you can go wild on this at the Seder if you wish to. You've got four sons, you've got four questions, right? You've got uh, the four cups. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, somebody's going to say like this. The first one is Bavel. The second cup is Connecticut Persia. The third cup is uh, Greece. Fourth, you know, like that. And, uh, and so it's a fundamental. Now, here's the point. Some of you know what I'm talking about by the ha- fact your head is nodding. Uh, at least I hope that's what they mean. And <laughs> the, other, the other half... The, the, the other half might not know what I'm talking about, in, in, but you have a general sense. And, and this is the, uh, what should I say, this is the bonus you get when you're from Jew. It's a bonus. You're given the past and a, and a general idea of the future. And so you know how to locate yourself. So you have two feet on the ground. He said, who are you? So I'm a Jew. Where you come from? I'm Yitzhak Yaka. What's that all about? We were once in Israel. We lost Israel. We're going to get it back one day. Meanwhile, we've got to go through some junk called the Four Kingdoms. I don't know how exactly it works. The Four is, you know, don't, I don't got the details. But the end is going to be good. Okay? Maybe it'll be a little rough at the end, but the end, end, end is going to be good. And I don't know if I'm in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, or Act 4, but I know which, which, I'm on the train and I know where the train is headed. The train is stopping in Jerusalem. You get it? Uh, I can't tell if it's a two-hour journey or a two-million-hour journey, but the train is stopping in Jerusalem. So this gives a person, they say, I know where I am, I know who I am, I know where my parents are, and I know where I'm going. But what if you're, put yourself for a moment in the, in the shoes of somebody today who's Jewish ethnically, but not religiously, doesn't describe anything, and they know anything about who their parents are, the Judaism, and all the rest of it. The typical person you run into in Baltimore or anywhere else. I don't say they're bad people, but Judaically, not only is the question of clueless, but they're adrift. Like, what's the goal? What's life? Where are you going? What train are you on? That's why you find the person, well, intermarriage or assimilation, it doesn't matter. Because they have no sense of rootedness. They have no sense of, of, of who they are and where they're going. They don't have an alternative game plan. You see? And these intellectuals know it, the, the ones I'm talking about. And they're striving to find or construct a new kind of Judaism, a Ju- narrative which will give the people some kind of a goal and some kind of an idea of who they are and locate themselves. Now, that's a little bit difficult, what I'm saying, but I, I hope you get at least a general idea of what I'm, what I'm talking about. The modern Jew no longer believes in the old religions. He no longer has an understandable past. Therefore, he has no understandable sense of direction where he and his people and his family are going. Directionless, you get nauseous. If you get, right? If you go on a, on a thing just like that over and over, you get nauseous. He yearns, the modern Jew, for a sense of direction, but who can discover this? Not the rabbi with his mythology, the Jewish historian. Because he can tell you at least what the past was, right? And, 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 and give you maybe, hopefully, they hope, a sense of direction. Actually, the Zionist Jewish historian, as they see it. I'm trying to put you in the shoes of these people back in the 1930 or so when all this stuff was starting. But how? Well, uh, through rigorous analysis of the past, combining methodological rigor and collecting and sifting the facts, plus the skill to connect the dots in such a way that a Mona Lisa appears. Because that's what a historian is supposed to be. Not just that you get a bunch of facts, but you put it together, you collect, connect the dots, and then you see a story. And so hopefully we will find all the Jewish stuff of the past, and when we assemble it, you know, logically in a compelling way, we are a great people with a great story, and it ain't over yet. You see? Um, after all, history is not a science, it's an art. 
it's uh, quite a statement I'm making over here. But you understand what I mean? It's, it's an art. I mean, how do you put the dots together? You know, the Rorschach test. You, you, you can assemble dots in different pictures. Can't you? Being faithful to the dots. If you cheat on the dots, you're writing, you're writing uh, novels. But if you stick with the dots, you have historical facts, you know, you, it can look like a whale, it can look like a bird, it can look like your brother, it can look like your mother-in-law, you know, it can look like anything. So, uh, how do you do it? You know, how do you do it? So, um, anyway, so here we see you have a modern Jew, Western, in 1930, from the whole religion into which he was born, did not seem to work, but he wanted something to replace it, in the sense of supplying Jewishly what the old religion used to supply. He's looking for it in the promise of Zionism, in the kind of belief system, Zionism promises to create and offer 20th century Jews. They will then have their cake and eat it. They'll be fully integrated into modern Western culture, but at the same time intensely and passionately engaged in a reconstructed Judaism. This is a cause to which he's willing to dedicate his life, on whose behalf he's willing to and happy to work very long hours hard. So we're dealing with a real idealist, a Jewish Jew. Not our kind of Jewish Jew exactly, but a Jewish Jew. You see? Uh, but God, with a bad sense of humor, intervenes. It's called the 1930s. This speech was in 1930. But then the 1930s comes in there. And we all know what the 1930s means. Over the next 15 years, the whole world of Fritz Baer collapses. The whole ideational world collapses like a house of cards. Because that's what the Hitler era did. Jews are shafted by the West. Indeed, this is particularly remarkable for a medievalist. The Hitler regime, the character of the Nazi regime in the 1930s, is specifically medieval. It is to reverse the emancipation process, to restore the ghetto, to actually expel the population. These are medieval ideas. And Hitler actually, as we know, does this. A Jew can't sit here, can't move here. They don't actually go back in Hitler's time and put people in the 30s into physical ghettos, but they do everything but, correct? So in a sense, you were isolated, which was the idea of the ghetto. And by the way, the Jew is completely driven from German culture. This was the great boast of Hitler and Goebbels. Now one, no Jewish artists, uh, movie makers, none of that stuff, right? Burn the books, you see? In other words, a principled return to the Middle Ages, and particularly to the harshest feature of the Middle Ages. So in the 1930s, Hitler's analog is Ferdinand and Isabella, correct? In which they want the Jews isolated, eventually uh, removed. If anything... Hitler and Nazism represent something worse because it's modern. Remember the famous speech of Churchill? If, if America doesn't help, we will sink into a new dark age at the Middle Ages made more sinister by the lights of perverted science. Right? The Nazis is not going to be Middle Ages because they have, they have cars and guns and tanks. And as we would say today, concentration camps and gas chambers, which are things that they didn't have, obviously, in there. To a medievalist like Fritz Baer, this is all doubly horrifying, as you can imagine. Like, what happened to the Germany that I grew up in? <laughs> See, and what happened to all my people? Have the assumptions of his life concerning the value of European culture been wrong? That is hard for a person to do. Most German Jews, he sees, do not want to leave. I mean, that's a sad fact. Uh, we all have friends and relatives that could have gotten out. Certainly, they don't want to go to Erzisroh. Most do not act with heroic dignity. If all the Jews would say, we drop everything, leave our money behind, and we're moving to Palestine, okay, but that's not what they do. Most of them bother bear, like Hannah Arendt, she goes to Paris and then to New York. She doesn't want to go to Israel. You see? She embraces the galut, as it were. 
So he begins a grand re-evaluation of the Middle Ages. Was Spain really the golden age of the Jews? After all, that was the raid, they used to say. Oh, the golden age of Spanish Jewry. But wait a minute. He is the expert on medieval Spanish Jewry. Gretz and the others back in good old 19th century had described Spain as the perfect Jewish community because of the lack of cultural insularity. So the fact they were open, people like the Rambam, Yehuda Levi, they know Arabic, they're open to philosophy and culture. This was their glory. But in Christian Spain, which he's the great expert on, the greater the secular knowledge, the worse the Jew. The rich were a bunch of mamzerim who screwed their own people. That's a fact. He, he's the one who did all the research. In fact, I mentioned earlier today, one of Bear's uh, disturbing and very interesting ideas, and he did it on the basis of a lot of knowledge, is there's no rich family that stays Jewish. It takes two generations, it takes three generations, sometimes four, and they're not Jewish anymore. It's, it's pretty remarkable what I just said. Okay? Uh, because class factors and other things kick in over there. So don't show me this guy who gave a zillion to do, was very religious. Show me his great-grandchild or great-great-grandchild. And, uh, and like I say, he was the expert. He knew it. All the Spanish, the wealthy, it takes a generation, two generations, and they're all gone. The educated Jews in Spain developed a skepticism which undermines their Judaism. The powerful use Averroism, as he calls it, in other words, uh, the philosophy of Ibn Rushd, to provide a justification for their Jewish laxity and their elitist indifference to their own people. And so there's nobody who, who went and found the original documents that finds in every Jewish community there's a class struggle. And the rich are sticking to the poor, the poor are protesting, the rich are calling on the government to punish the poor as a reign of terror. And, 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 and the same guy wants to get a shlishi, you know, he wants to get mafter, and everybody in the community hates him. And the rabbis just talk in the middle and decide with this faction, that faction. And so all of a sudden, the so-called Givaldic golden age of the Jews in Spain isn't, okay? And this leads to what Baron uh, was not the first, but he makes a big deal out of this, what you call 1391 versus 1096. How come in Ashkenaz in Germany, when the Jews were compelled to change their religion, they all mass suicide? They, 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 they willingly, I mean, they went willingly, they shechted themselves and, and things like this, it's a horrible scene, but they had the total intestinal fortitude to look their oppressors in the face. How come in Spain, most of the Jews convert? So how come in one place, like, and, and, and these are questions he never asked before. And he's starting to say, gee, all the cultural non-insularity and Europeanness and integration with the modern world, all the rest of it, undermines the Judaism and makes it weak and not able to resist the pressures that the general society will from time to time put on the Jews to force them to change. He ends up following like the Chassid Yavitz in 1492, a famous uh, person who left in 1492 who says that when 1492 came and the pressure was on, you had to leave the country, uh, the rich, the educated, converted because they wanted to hold on what they had. The poor schnooks in the shoals, this is what he writes, who, he lived then. The poor schnooks in the shoals, the ones that they didn't know how to learn, everybody used to make fun of them, the, the shoemaker, the tailor, the little guy over here, they had the courage to drop everything and suffer all the junk from the Spanish and leave the country under great privation and make it to Turkey or other places and stay Jewish. And so who is who's the one who's respect-inspiring? The person with a university degree who's got the spine of a jellyfish? Or the poor little person out there who has no education, but he's a Jewish Jew. And he's willing to live and die as a Jew. Uh, there's nobody like Bear that can uh, record all this stuff. He could not help but ask, why was Spain, the, which is the object of his love, 
the only place where their mass conversion is to Christianity. You didn't find in Ashkenaz other places large numbers of people becoming Christian. And in Spain you do. What does this tell us about the so-called great Sephardic civilization? The simple Jew in Ashkenaz, now he's forcing a reevaluation, with all of his superstitions and all of his blithe insularity, was better than the Spanish Jew with all that sophistication. So he's turning a, a grad on the head, you know. He thought that Sephardim were the great ones, and because of Rambam and all the rest of it, he said, That's not, if, if you actually go and do the, 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 the research, it turns out not to be that way. In other words, when Bayer is writing about the Jews in 1200 to 1492, if we can play a Sigmund Freud over here, who's he really writing about? The German Jews of his time in the 1930s. You get it? Uh, after Mendelssohn. And he eventually says, especially Spinoza, once the skepticism of Spinoza comes in, it undermines the strong Jewish feeling of the German Jews, and therefore they fold like a house of cards. They're not able to put up a heroic and dignified resistance to Hitler, most of them. You see? And uh, it's a failure. So he takes it all uh, seriously. A true intellectual, he is willing to confront the necessity of rethinking everything. Okay? And he says a very famous statement. Zionist worldview may not twist events to fit well-known ends. It must see things as they are. And uh, a lot of my assumptions uh, were wrong. And history is playing uh, games with me. Uh, I, ca I cannot and will not pretend that Hitler is not here. I cannot and, and, and will not pretend that German Jewry is being disintegrated with the society who they tried to ape and imitate and whose uh, um, approval they sought so pitifully that they're willing to change themselves a thousand times in order to gain the approval of the Germans and this is what the Germans go and do in them. All right? Being a historian, he can only express himself in a history way. And so he composes a little book, a creed de Cur, which is still interesting to read today. Uh, Galut, look how small it is. You person German. It's been published in many languages, okay? In which um, he <laughs> is under shock. This is written in 1936. And he's, it's a, it's a, like I said before, he's not an artist, he's a historian. So he can order a very brief essay scanning the whole of Jewish history and doing it from the point of view of what is the essence of Judaism, the feeling of Galut and not being in Eretz Yisrael, and how Jews in every generation reacted in this and this way. And by the time he's finished, Modern Jewish thinkers are all wrong. Uh, Geiger, Wise, Dubno, Reform Jews, all there, they're all wrong. You know who got it right? You won't believe this. You got it right? The Maral of Prague. <laughs> okay? Uh, meaning the people with the theosophy and they put Judaism in the center of all their thinking. Uh, he actually has a, I, I, I'm going to read the uh, last paragraph over here, or it's long, but, uh, you know, I, I will, uh, I will uh, take the trouble to read it. It says, We may appeal to such ideas today with the consciousness. It's up to us to give, up, to give the old faith a new meaning. If we seek to end the Galut, let us not attribute our desires to early generations, meaning we're not religious as they were. Let, rather, let us draw from the ideas of early generations the consequences which follow from a changed spiritual approach to an unchanged political situation. So they were from, we're not from, but the, but the political situation has not changed. The Jewish revival at present day in its essence is not determined by national movements of Europe, so Zionism is not just a variation of modern nationalism. It harks back to the ancient national consciousness of the Jewish people. It's part of who we are, and it long predated the 18th century and this kind of thing. We are not the uh, analog of those guys. We, in fact, it existed before the history of Europe. It's undeniable that this turning home must involve a coming to grips with the ancient Jewish consciousness of history on whose foundations European culture constantly repeatedly reared itself. And if you read the writings of Bear, he says the guy stole everything from us. And nobody can do it like him. You look at the early Jew, uh, uh, Christian ideas, 
theology, this, the city as it emerges in the Middle Ages, which he argues is based out of the Gehi law, all the ideas is just that after they stole our clothes, then they demonized us. Okay? And like I tell you again, if I say it, I'm just talking through my hat. If he says it, he knows the Middle Ages, he knows Christianity better than the Pope, you understand? Uh, that's, that's who he is. And for us, perhaps, the final consequence of modern historical thinking coincides with the final consequence of the old Jewish conception of history. Now, maybe what our great-grandparents told us is what we have to face also, which comes to us from no alien tradition, but has grown out of our own essential being. A nenu rovelozar, our eyes saw it in those strangers. If to, we today can read each coming day's events, and this is in the time of Hitler, in ancient and dusty chronological tables, as though history were the ceaseless unrolling of a process proclaimed once and for all in the Bible, then every Jew in every part of the diaspora may recognize that there is a power that lifts the Jewish people out of the realm of causal history. Oh, he did a big sin. You can't bring God into this. Not if you're a historian. He, 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 he did a big Avera over here, you understand? Uh, and, and, and it's a tribute to the great pressure that Jews feel, and people like sensitive Jews feel under him, for a historian to switch to meta-history is shocking. Okay? Um, because you're supposed to history about human causality. You can't say, there's a force that moves in history, all the rest of it. Even a guy like him, you might say like this, his Bobby and Zadie came to him in a dream. You know? So like, it's, 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 it's compelled in these situations. It's a reaction to the literal deconstructing of German Jewry, which he clearly sees, and he can't deny it, hand of God, even though he doesn't like to use that word. Baer then focuses in his writings on weird Jewish reactions to, 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 to uh, persecutions in Spain, the same way the German Jews are reacting weirdly and appropriately. So he's into Abner Burgos, Isaac Polgar, Chazdei uh, Kraskis. He's, he's, he becomes fascinated with famous Rosh Hashivas who convert to Christianity in the 1200s and 1300s. I say it again, Rosh Hashivas, a big rabbi, Poskim, Poskim, who, uh, who, who convert to uh, Christianity, write whole very interesting books in Hebrew, in rabbinic Hebrew, in which they do better or worse than the Pugio Fide of, of Raymond Martini that I mentioned before, which was the, the Catholic priest who collected all the stuff out of the Talmud and such place to go against Judaism. But these guys were Rosh Hashivas, okay? I mean, they, they, we have them in the Shalos and Shubas, some of these people. You don't know who I'm talking about, but they're there. And the most famous of them is Abner Burgos, who uh, converted at the age of 60 years old. So he was a rabbi in Rosh Hashiva, then at the age of 60, he uh, switches to Christian and last... Uh, Unfortunately, he lived a long life. So the last uh, 25 years of his life, he's writing all this kind of junk in there. And Bear is fascinated with all this kind of stuff because he says, what is there in the Jewish genes that we have some good Jews, but we also have something in us that reacts in this crazy way to the persecution to which we're constantly uh, subjected. And uh, uh, in other words, a historian who started out being fascinated by the Jews of, uh, of that golden age became increasingly disillusioned with them and his Writings chronicle this unwittingly. More and more he came to look at the medieval Ashkenazic Jew, who had no secular education whatsoever, as you know, uh, as the model for Jewish community. These Jews were grounded in a simple piety. Bear came to see the simple piety and the desire for justice as the essence of Judaism. So he's the first guy who'll say, this is better than this. The Sefer Hasidim, which is the pietistic book from medieval Germany, which is full of ghosts and goblins, among other things, is nevertheless better than Maimonides' Famous, oh, philosophy book. Everybody have a university courses and then the guy for perplex, all the rest of it. He said, this represents a sterile and decadent attitude to Judaism, and this is the real living thing. 
You can make fun of these bubbies and zadies, as you call them all that, but they, but when, when, when push came to shove, they had what it takes. And the other one doesn't. Um, and they invented the democratic cities, I told you, because he says the Christians got the idea of modern municipal government from these types of people. Uh, in other words, Bear is fascinated with the Kehlah, which, of course, was the state of Israel in pre-modern times. Uh, today, in the year 2015, there exists one Kehill in the world, only one, that's the state of Israel, because it's an autonomous course of Jewish community. Correct? And he's writing in the years when Israel was just starting, therefore he's focusing, what can we find about the Jewish genius as he puts it for self-government that will offer us opportunities to put in Israel. And I want to tell you something, yesterday was Israel Independence Day, and Israel got a lot of junk, we know that, got a lot of problems, but, you know, they put together a democratic country for 65 years. Show me another country has done that. You know, you know what I mean? For the third world, there aren't any, or hardly any. So with all the problems, who, who, who can match that? You know, while all these nations making fun of the Jews, you know, and they have dictatorships and worse, and the Jews, all the, with all the junk that we have over there, we have a, it's, it's a democracy, it's voting, it's, it, and, 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 and it's negotiation, they're putting it together. By the time the Holocaust comes, Fritz Bear is, is, is finished, baby, with Spanish Jewry, which is fascinating. The thing that you put all your professional interest in, all of a sudden depressing to him. His most famous book, The Jews in Christian Spain, is ready for publication in 1938 in German, but he doesn't publish it until 45 and in Hebrew. Uh, almost, you know, as an afterthought, you see? And you understand why the Holocaust. You see, although he's a nationalist, a secular Zionist, he feels that national identity is a historical function of his religious belief and outlook. You can't deny, knowing what he knows about Jewish history, right, that religion has a seminal role in the Jewish formation. In fact, throughout the whole history of the Jewish people, religion has functioned as a primary imminent force in the dynamics of Jewish history. On the other hand, he's not from, so how do you square that circle? The answer is you can't, okay? And this becomes the conundrum of the modern, thoughtful, secular, Zionist, intellectual, modern, thoughtful, Jewish intellectual of the 20th century. He's not alone in this, as Yaakov Herzog in his career discovered. I mentioned it before. Um, let's go to the next one. Yeah, Herzog was, was religious. Or there's a, he was a sector of Ben-Gurion, Zalman Iran, Zalman Shazar, and others. In their off moments, they would ask him, so, do you really believe in God? How does that work? They're, fat, they're looking for something they can't become from. It's, it's like, ah, it's too late. But, 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 they, but they don't they don't feel that there's nothing out there either. So how do you, as an educated religious person, relate to this? Bear is from this group, the most thoughtful of the modern intellectuals. Einstein, too, by the way, I'm sure you know. Uh, they say, all right, I'm not into mythology, but what's there? <laughs> you say, what's there? But it's, it's very hard to, to, to do this, okay? Uh, so the result is confusion. But if you're a historian like Bear, you figure, I won't find the answer to the question of how to attain religious Jewish religion without orthodoxy in medieval Judaism, it's not possible. Maybe I can find it in ancient Judaism, pre-medieval. And so, in the middle of his career, the guy who was a total expert in the Middle Ages drops it after the Second World War, and he switches totally to Bayashani, in which he published from the age of 62 to 92, he published a bunch of books and stream of articles about the Second Temple period because he's looking for the formation, the secret of Jewish history that will show us now in the modern state of Israel that just came into being, how we should have a direction. Where is the state going and where is the modern Jew going if he's not interested in the old religion? The problem is he knows the Greek and Roman stuff cold. 
So when you read his articles about the second Temple period, there is nobody that says expert. His uncle was the Mamsen, you know. There's nobody who knows the Greek and the Roman culture the way he does. But he doesn't know the Jewish culture. He doesn't know the Talmud and the rabbinic writings. This is, this is foreign to him. So he has dozens of brilliant and flawed articles. You know, they're always good in the Greek context. He never gets the, the Jewish stuff right. Here we come to the paradox of the bears of the modern world. Can one be a successful Jewish historian without being a big Talmud Chacham? It's a good question. It's, 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 a, uh, it's, an unfortunate, it's an uncomfortable question. And the answer is not by the rigorous standards insisted upon by Bayer and Tabler. They said you have to know a subject totally, totally, totally. You have to all the Gaisha stuff. Well, then, my, my friends, you got to know the Jewish stuff in the stuff that you don't like so much. He said, but how can I do it? I went to Yeshiva, all the rest of it. It's tough, isn't it? <laughs> right? No, 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 I'm serious. If you're really honest, intellectually honest, and rigorous, you have to know all the material. So, but, but you didn't have training in it. You see? Um, there's a wonderful, and I'm near the end, there's a wonderful uh, uh, review article by uh, Israel Toshma. Uh, if that name means anything, he died not long ago, a famous Israeli historian. I know it's a funny name, but nevertheless, he was a very famous Israeli historian. He was the expert on Liksav Yads and so forth. He, he was a big, very uh, big, at, at, at Hebrew University. And he has, 30 years after a bear, he publishes a book review, and he says, listen, Bear was a nice guy, and he did amazing work, all the rest of it. You didn't mention anything about the Rishonim and the rabbinic literature and the history of the Jews of Christian Spain. How the heck do you do that? You, you have a letter if the Ramban was called by the king for a conference, and you have a letter with the Rajba intervening in a, in a trial, you know, with, with the royal justiciary or something like that. You have the letter of appointment of the Ran by the queen of, uh, of Aragon. Have you ever read the Ran? The Rajba, the Ritva, the Ramban, the sort of things that, that's the meat and potatoes of the rabbinic culture, who's, who have created the culture we live in, at least Orthodox Jews, because they made, essentially, the Shulchan Aruch, if, if, if you know, right? All the things we do today come from the interpretation by these Spanish guys. Um, and the military, you mentioned nothing about them. How is that possible? The emperor has no clothes, you see? And, and, and don't simply say it's something you left out. It's got to affect your conclusions. And, and, and it is a problem, you understand? It is a problem. So uh, what are you going to do? The conclusion is, to study the career of this gifted man, one sees, to use his own analytical terms, the rise and fall of the Zionist cultural utopian ideals. His years, 1888 to 1980, perfectly situated him to experience the rise, the crisis, and the fall. Came up in the 1880s. He, he got his doctorate in the early 20th century. Uh, this, the golden years of Zionism when they were doing good work. Everybody planned that uh, Palestine and Israel would be a great place. And, you know, it would be, be been all there, um, but, but it didn't turn out that way. His life, as it unfolded, history moved in different directions. All utopias are great in their preliminary stages when they're beautiful dreams, right? All utopias are, by definition, great. But then they run into reality. The six million would have populated a perfect state of Israel. I think that's true. But they disappeared in a whiff of smoke. And Zionism, which was supposed to rescue them, was unfortunately re revealed as impotent. Okay? Uh, just as in our time, Israel is touted as a safe haven for the Jews, but then what about the Iranian bomb? You know? The, the, the reality is, is, is not so great. The state of Israel did not turn out to be a great spiritual center for secular Jews, the way Achanaam envisioned it. You can't say that America, I wish there was the case, the American Jewish kids didn't know nothing about Israel. Bear was convinced the answer lay somewhat, somewhere in history, but was he successful? Now, he had a good neshama as we would say. He was a Jewish Jew, and he passionately devoted his life to this stuff. He still adhered to that school of thought that said 
that no one cannot be a success, no one can be a successful Jewish historian if he doesn't love his people. If such love does not infuse it, methodologically rigorous and fully researched and objectively analyzed, if it doesn't object uh, his work, uh, then it's no good. And he tried. There's no question the person I'm describing wanted to do the best for the Jewish people. Until the late 1980s, therefore, he was the dominant figure in Israeli historiography, and the Jewish historians coming out of Israel were pro-Israel. You understand? If you came up under him, and they all had to, you understand? If you came up under him, you're brainwashed by bear. And if you're brainwashed by bear, it's like this. Don't hide anything, and be honest, all the rest of it, but you're, you're a Jew. You're, you're helping the Jewish people. You understand? You're supporting Israel with, with your talents. But since then, since the 1980s, a um, new group have popped up, and they hate their people, and they hate their country. The Israeli historians, most of them, oh, this is a bad thing, but it's the truth. Historians hate their country. I showed you the two pictures last week, guys like him, Shalom, saying, there is no Israel, there is no Jewish people. You understand? They're, 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 they're self-hating. They've taken the old stuff and using the historical voice. And so, what happens over here? The result is, is it possible to have Zionism without Orthodox Judaism? Of course, this was the argument of Rav Kook. <laughs> you can't have one without the other. Sooner or later, you'll have to see it. He wasn't exactly right. Some see it, but others continue to insist that there's another vision, but it has not led them in the road of Zionism. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.